Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Happy welcome. Friday. Happy Friday, boys. Happy welcome, Friday. Alex. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And before we start, because I think we're going to jump in pretty quickly, I think everyone wants to get to uh, the discussion part, but disclaimer, this isn't investment advice. It is uh, for educational information, informational purposes only. And with that, I'll kick it over to uh, you guys. Okay, well, um, let me just very briefly introduce our guest, Alex Gurevich, who obviously needs very little introduction for most people on this broadcast, I'm sure. Um, Alex is the author of uh, two incredible books on trading. One is uh, The Next Perfect Trade, and the other is The Trades of March 2020. And uh, so I'm sure we're going to want to get into both the uh, you know historical experience that informed the writing of those books. And um, of course, we're going to dive into some of the incredible dynamics that are in play right now and and driving markets and maybe get Alex's insights into how people might want to position and um, manage risk and and maybe uh, maybe harvest opportunities at the moment. But maybe before we get started, Alex, can you maybe just give us a a couple minutes of background and and, uh, where you come from and um, how you got into this nasty business? Well, I my back, my educational background is mathematics. I've always wanted to be a mathematician, and that was one of my gateway drugs. And my other gateway drug is uh, that I was uh, always interested in competing, academic competitions and strategy games. I grew up in Russia. I left Russia in '89 when I was in the middle of college, but 
back then, of course, I learned to play chess and I competed in chess. And then I started to play the Japanese and Chinese game Go very seriously and compete on that. And then later I learned poker and a whole bunch of other strategic games. And that really combined with my analytical approach to make kind of a perfect setup to have a Wall Street mind, so to say. It was very natural for me to think of like, oh, what can I do with strategy? Oh, financial markets, that's a perfect place to be. So I, my natural path was always to be a mathematician. I went to, got my PhD in the University of Chicago, but, and it's a, would be a subject for a whole separate podcast to discuss how you choose career paths and up on Wall Street versus academia. I made a choice to go on Wall Street partially because I felt I found my measure in academia and I've proven myself there. And I've had good results and good uh, kind of traction there, but I also knew like where is my floor and where is my ceiling, so to say. And I felt I want to go and try this other thing. And I was interested not in being a quantitative analyst, I was interested really to trade. So my, I wanted to implement strategy. Not, I was very adamant that I wouldn't crunch equations on the Wall Street for just twice the play. Nothing wrong with people to do that and some of them. I have friends who did extremely well doing that. It's just not what I wanted to do ever. I wanted to be, and I started the Bankers Trust, which ended up being Deutsche Bank. I made one move to Chase for a more senior job. Like my starting jobs were basically on customer fixed income derivatives desks. I had some encounter with various less liquid derivative transactions like index swaps and uh, like I really really got into asset swaps and I started like stuff like municipal index swaps for example and I did uh, bond options and including even mortgage and agency and some exotic options so in Deutsche Bank various wide range of trades I ended up my first senior job at Chase where when I ran the basis for franchise and then launched the agency bond asset swap franchise uh, I actually started at trading them as a package in 2001 at Chase, which became JP Morgan Chase. And did this for a few years. I started, then I went to proprietary side, then I'm global macro portfolio. I'm doing very, very abbreviated career version. Yep. And this is when I was running a global macro portfolio as part of global currency and commodities group, JP Morgan. This is where really my strategy started to coalesce. And when I later went on my own and started to do various things on my own over time. I started to articulate the strategy more and more and be more and more rigorous about how I implement it. And eventually I wrote a book about it. The first book you mentioned, The Next Perfect Trade. I wrote it mostly like in 2014, it came out in 2015. And it very relevant, it's been very relevant when, I, when it came out because some of the patterns I observed there are very interestingly manifesting now. So there would be stuff to talk about there. I soon thereafter I started to take client money again and launched my current form fund investments. And um, the experiences of 2020 led me to writing another book, The Trades of March 2020, which is just basically trying to have this fly on the wall view of um, what it's like to descend into the chaos of pandemic for financial markets. Kind of the idea was of that book, this is the book, and I'm sure you'll bring it up more, but I just wanted to show it, The Trades of March 2020, a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Love the idea of this book is to kind of let aspiring traders 
be like medical students being led in the operating room. You can really see blow by blow what is happening. You can read the trade chatter with all the curses, all the screw ups. Uh, that was the uh, kind of intention. But it's also, I think, interested to my peers because they can uh, compare notes. And it's interesting to broader audience who just interested what the hell is going on inside hedge funds is beyond what movies show you. That I think my book is really unique in this way because of the transcripts that I use that people can see faithfully, like without any bias, what is really going on inside. And now we're on to the new crisis, and I'm trying to navigate the next, the next big thing. Okay, well let's yeah. let's go right there because you you mentioned something from the um, the next perfect trade, and that you are seeing patterns right now that align with some of the frameworks that you laid out in in that book. So maybe what was the what was the general premise of the next perfect trade and then how do you see some of the the patterns that you were talking about in that book playing out currently so okay so this is a good place to start the general premise of the book the next perfect trade that there are certain um parameters that you can judge trades ex ante because very often we say like oh that was a great trade we made so much money or this was terrible I lost money, right? But how do we actually go through the trade, sele trade selection process has to happen before you know the outcome. And the next perfect trade was really focused on the trade selection process. And I tried to identify factors which are as non-speculative as possible. And full disclaimer, we're speculators. We're going to speculate. <laughs> I always tell my investors, I'm not there to hold your assets. I'm here to buy low and sell high. It doesn't matter what your time horizon, it could be 20 years or two months, you're still a trader. If you're a trader, you're a trader. You're buying low, selling high. So as you so as you speculate, how do you turn the odds in your favor? How do you try to be a house versus, like in the casino versus the gambler? And there are certain parameters that tend to turn trades in your favor. And I was going through this chapter by chapter and look the next perfect trade. And one of the important parameters that this chapter was historical pattern. Things happen, things happen in certain patterns, like certain things lead to certain things. They don't have to repeat, but much more often I'm surprised about how they repeat versus how they don't repeat. Much more often I'm surprised when you think like, oh, this time is different, it ends up being not different. Then the time when you get surprised, but it's different. And both surprises happen, but so what I find is that the odds are very strongly skewed when you observe. This is just one chapter out of like 15 chapters on the book, right, Andrew? Clear. But odds are very strongly skewed when you observe certain things. And there are certain things that are observable in the current markets, which I used also successfully in 2018. So my book, the, the next book, the next, the trades of March 2020, I set a little bit the background for how I was thinking, what I was thinking about in 2020. And early in 2018, I started to observe signs of late cycle, various patterns that repeated in the past. As markets go, economy goes in a late cycle, and market is about to roll over into recession or slowdown. More importantly for me, you, I don't trade GDP. GDP is not an asset by itself. I generally care about what happens to interest rates more than anything. I come from background of interest rates. For me, that's bread and butter. 
Equities are sometimes harder to gauge, and it's very hard to be short equities because they tend, stocks on average go up. And being short is just a recipe to be squeezed again and again. But fixed income has been good because you can just say like, okay, what kind of things show that interest rates are about to go down? And I saw a lot of that while Fed was still hiking in 2018, I saw a lot of that indicators. Give us some of those specifics, if you wouldn't mind. Like, are you looking at the repo market? Are you looking at the, the shape and the slope of the interest rate curve? Walk us through some of the features that you're watching. Well, I'll focus on things which are actually repeating today, if you don't mind. Great. One of the interesting, like the sharp rise in oil prices has been, and I, there's been a debate on Twitter and people like uh, doing yes and no on sharp rise in oil prices as, as, in, as uh, foreshadowing of recession. And again, if I told you this today and it's the first time I did work on it, it would be, it would be spurious. But I did that work in 2018. And I wrote in my investor letter in 2018 showing how rise in oil prices has a pattern of foreshadowing recessions. So that's, for example, one thing. Another paradoxically, Strong employment, very strong employment, very tight labor markets typically foreshadow recessions. And there is a logic there because once the labor market tight, you cannot grow anymore. Now, there is some argument whether the labor market is now tight or not. Because some people say it's tight, but it's not really tight. It's because of low participation. But it acts as if it's tight. And in the past, that was foreshadowing all over in interest rates. Yield curve. It's a little, I have a little different attitude towards the yield curve. It's definitely to be looked at. And I did notice the fact that whenever yield curve goes inverted, like my, one of my favorites saying, whenever yield curve is inverted, it's not inverted enough. So right now the market shows uh, easing in 2023, 2024. Whenever that shows that, not only it will occur, but there'll be much more of it than priced. I don't know precedence on market aggressively and continuously priced easing and easing didn't happen. What, how that pressure works, but my theory, I'm a little cautious with yield curve indicator because I think long ago I made this example. If you're falling off the 20th floor of a building, flying by the 10th floor is a really good leading indicator that you're gonna hit the ground. <laughs> you should already be knowing that you're falling. <laughs> Is the broken yield curves invert? You should already know that something is off here. So there are disjoint equity price actions, like disconnecting between different equity markets and like sectors really diverging from each other is also a sign of late cycle, for example, for me. <clears throat> and I, I don't know, would you agree or disagree? People here probably know more about equities than I do, but it feels like there is some sector divergence happening. But well, we're definitely seeing some rotation. Yeah, but it's a, it's a difficult, I'm a little cautious with those statements because it's so easy to make a statement there is some rotation because there's always some rotation, right? <laughs> but some, the feel of it, this is more art and science here. The feel of it is late cyclish for me. So those are the type of examples. I've also, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because I've been pounding on this indicator for a while, but my interest rate momentum indicator is flashing absolute red for stock market. That is red, you said. Red, yes, like very negative predict. I've never been seen my favorite indicator being basically as negative for stock market as it's been in my career. 
Can you can you drop a little deeper? What indicator is that? The difference between ten year yields two year today and two years ago and today. Very simple. Have has the ten year yield risen or fallen over the last two years? And the fit of that chart. And what is what is also very relevant that I published this chart first time in my first book in 2015, and I saw the amazing fit. And then since then, and I charted it, and since then the fit continued to be amazing. So I had kind of the quarantined seven years of data, which I could not have known now, confirming my pattern. And the pattern has been amazing because think about this: what like if you think what happened, 2013, 2014. Taper tantrum, rates have risen. 2015, 2016, two years later, we're having industrial recession and Brexit and correction markets. What happens in 2016? Rates have fallen. What happens for the next two years, 2016 to 2018? We're having rising stock market. What happens in 2018? Rates have risen versus 2016. What happens next two years? We're starting to have trouble with stock market long before COVID. 2018 is having a correction, then we're having COVID bear market. What happens in 2020? Rates have fallen. What happens next two years? Extremely bullish stock market. What do we have now? Rates have risen. So let me let me just pull on a couple of the indicators that you have mentioned here. Let's start with a rapid rise in oil prices. And, um, you know, we've observed the same phenomenon, the same pattern where a 50% year over year or greater than 50% year over year rise in oil prices, rise in gasoline prices has predated recessions and stock market corrections in the past. Um, some of the sell side uh, analysts have been putting out decks that show that there's been such a decline in energy intensity over the last decade or two, especially in Western markets where um, you just need fewer units of uh, energy input. So in other words, fewer barrels of oil or gasoline, it's three units of natural gas to produce the same amount of GDP growth. And therefore, the, the you know rapid rise in gasoline and energy prices may not have the same recessionary causal impacts this time around. So maybe just let's knock down a few of the more common arguments against some of these more commonly recognized indicators of recessionary risk. So any thoughts on that, the, the decline in energy intensity and the fact that that may not trigger recession in this case? I don't think I have the power to knock down those arguments. There is definitely a decline in energy intensity and there also, uh, compared to decades ago, U.S. has less energy, like if you just become U.S.-centric, has less energy dependence. We're actually net energy producer, right? We could export energy. We don't have to import energy. All of those factors are so, and all of those factors to be adjusted. But I want to go back to my early point. Patterns have higher chances of repeating than otherwise. And what I'm thinking that it's not necessarily that the energy is dragging on global economy as a tax. It's just the kind of conditions that cause the rise of energy are typically concurrent for pre-recessionary conditions. It's like what's going on in the pipelines of the world which causes energy to spike is usually the type of things that go on before the growth rolls over. That's my kind of justifications. I'm not going to... The mechanics of how, whether oil price in itself is going to cause a recession in the United States, in some sense, I don't see that mechanics. 
I'm not gonna, I don't think by itself it's a recessionary thing. You could even argue it's inflationary because we have a lot of like uh, energy producers and their bonds will do better and whatever. But the sharp rise, it may be even that the sharp rise on energy, for example, looks to, leads to quick restructuring of energy demand in energy industry, that it leads to subsequent sharp decline in energy. And we can talk about this. For example, I putting a crazy high probability and absolute crush on energy in the next couple of years. And we can talk about why, but, and that could be the recessionary situation because there's a saying that the best cure for high oil prices is high oil prices. Yeah. Because people start pr producing more, rethinking the infrastructure. Or, I mean, other countries start increasing production, increasing domestic production, energy independence. And then two, three years later, you have prices way lower than the forward curve implies. Not brave enough to be short oil necessarily here, because the acquisition is already very strong, so you have to be very brave to show deferred oil. But the possibilities, how that plays out, are rising. To the yeah. extent that you don't necessarily see sometimes fundamental reasons why some of these patterns do repeat themselves, uh, to what extent do you think that there is a component of uh, self-fulfilling prophecy to some of these things, like the behavior of investors uh, once they see a, a certain price dyna dynamic will then lead them to act in a certain way. So, so, so how do you think about that continuum between fundamental uh, uh, dynamics at play versus sort of behavioral slash uh, uh, expectation reasons? That's a good question. There might be some aspects of self-fulfilling prophecies. Most of the indicators, I think, I don't think are self-fulfilling prophecies because uh, even again, in my first book, I talked about the fact that I called the negative predictive power of interest rate futures. What I meant by that is the more interest rates are projected higher in the future, the lower they're actually likely to be and converse. So when we, in 2020, the rates were like zero, zero, zero forever, that was a little bit in hindsight, an excellent predictor that actually hiking will start much earlier than people Realize and right now, hike, 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 hike is an excellent predictor that rates will be zero in 2023, <laughs> which is my central view currently, by the way. So, is it just that the market now is conditioned to do the work of central bankers in advance of the central bankers actually needing to raise rates and or run off their um, their balance sheets? Like what? What is what is the underlying dynamic there that that that, that causes this? You know, changes in rates to be such an an inverse indicator of what to expect going forward. You know, I think a lot of this has to do with their kind of human conditioning, which is even for smartest humans and very hard to avoid. And even I'm often subject to that conditioning, even though I'm talk about this and I'm very aware of this, is the conditioning that people very much have the feel that the environment that is currently now will persist further. It's a very fundamental, strong feeling. Like when, for example, if there is like a COVID wave, we're like, okay, let's hunker down. This is where the COVID is worst. While, for example, with the height of COVID wave, that's already where it's gonna come over, right? come off, right? Uh, and it's been like a lot of those things we are going during pandemic. The example I gave actually in my second book was if you walk on the beach and there's a narrow strip of land 
and you see the wave coming in, waves coming in and out, and you want to run through this without getting wet. Now, if you're going to wait for the wave to start receding, you're going to start running, the wave will come in as you're running and get you wet. What you should do, you should start running when the wave is still at the high, knowing that it's going to start receding as you're running, and you'll run in the gap of time when it starts receding. So it's very hard to think about this this way in the markets. So what happens is and then people like saying things like inflation is high, labor market is tight, high, high, high. Usually it's at a time when those things already, things of the past. That is currently my, again, possibly flawed, but biased, well, if you wish my bias towards the situation, I think this whole inflationary scare is a thing of the past. That's something that did happen. And worrying about, and to me, like, I feel like I'm in some kind of weird, insane world that people are talking about worrying about inflation right now. I think the worries should be very different right now, but uh, um, they are worried about inflation and they are pushing up their interest rates. And I think that as it always happened before, it will happen the other way. Isn't, isn't it the very fact that, that you have to have the overreaction in order to get back to zero? You have to have the inflationary impulse. You have to have this supposed reaction and potential error in policy to then have to unwind it all the way back down to a, a zero rate once it's realized that the inflation may have been transitory in some sense, right? You, you've, you've mistimed the running of, you're running across the wave a little bit. Yes. And I think the Fed will gonna, I think the economy is going to get splashed. And very, well, not necessarily, but I think the odds are heightened of us all getting splashed by this. Yes. What is interesting about this environment, that I don't even know if they're going to get rates very high because in, I don't think usually things look like they do now at the beginning of a hiking cycle. Like inverted yield curves usually would come much later. Again, I'm not really a huge expert on studying this, but things are beginning to look like, usually at the beginning of the hiking cycle, financial conditions seem to be loose. Dollar was, for example, in 2004, we started hiking cycle, dollar continued to weaken from 2004 to 2007. Um, gold had an enormous rally. Nothing like we're talking about gold rallying last few weeks. That's like nothing. That's just but noise up $20, down $20. Gold went from $300 to eventual high of like $1,800, right? In the following decade. There was uh, nothing like that going on right now, right? Uh, silver went like almost up to $50, and that is back then, right? So we're not seeing any of these dynamics. We're not seeing any of the dynamics of. And there was none of like 2004, 2005, interestingly, market was very cautious about pricing hikes. They weren't pricing a lot of hikes. They ended up hiking more than the market price. Right now, market started to get really aggressive about pricing hikes. It's a very deep, and those is usually like when market, because first market usually resists, no, 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 and then they're going to hike, maybe like once or twice. And then like, okay, we're going to hike. 2006, 2007, that's when eventually like, okay, bond market sells off and gives up, right? And that's, what happens afterwards, great recession, right? And there's so, an so, argument There's an argument to be made that uh, tighter monetary policy doesn't necessarily help inflation when the source of inflation comes from a lack of supply of certain goods uh, yeah. for a moment and particularly uh, heightened energy prices, right? There, there's no such thing as hiking interest rates in order to cure higher oil prices. So I wonder if you might comment on that and maybe to what extent this might be a, a political move given... Uh, that the inflationary button 
has been pressed and the president's, uh, the U.S. president's uh, popularity uh, suffers from this. And, and, and as always, there's a political component to all this or there, there tends to be. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very good point. I totally agree. I've been talking about this a lot. It seems completely preposterous to me that Fed is trying to, to me, like my logic, but some people disagree with me. So just keep in mind, it's just one person's perspective. My logic, it seems completely preposterous that Fed is trying to solve supply chain inflation by uh, supply chain inflation by raising rates because there are several dynamics going on there. Let's assume for a second that people are really hurting from inflation, right? And politically, they have to appear to be doing something. But their recipe to this, their remedy to this is saying like, okay, you have a hard time buying things. So we'll make it even harder for you to buy stuff. We'll hurt you even more. Then you'll stop buying it. And then maybe price will come down. This logic seems to be very perverse to me. It doesn't make any sense. And as for spiraling inflation argument, I just don't know. I don't think we'll have enough evidence if this inflation is spiraling, spiraling or not. And uh, however, even when people, like kind of people hurting from inflation, people don't like when prices go up. That's painful. But what is interesting, what was pointed out to me that real wages on the bottom percentage of population is actually quite positive growth of real wages. So like actually this last two years have been an equalizing event. It did, it might have help wealth and income inequality that a lot of people are complaining about or what actually inflationary events typically do. So this is again paradox that people, this is not a political statement left or right. This is more like people for a while, it was almost like consensus. People were saying, well, inequality is an issue. Now we're having a pattern uh, that was diminishing this inequality. And now people are saying, let's raise race and crush this pattern. I, I just nothing really makes. And well, I'm not sure that the pattern is addressing inequality, you know, allowing incomes in the bottom decile to rise by 15 or 20 percent while the S&P rises by 50 to 100 percent and housing prices also rise by 50 percent. I think the bottom decile is still dramatically behind in terms of, of their ability to pursue the American dream. So like it is, it is nice to see that, you know, um, um, the lowest wage earners are, are catching up a little bit after two or three decades of falling further and further behind. But I think we, we have a long way to go. And one thing that at the very least you can say about a more hawkish fed is that it will deflate, current global asset bubbles and um, therefore potentially put assets within reach, you know, productive assets with some, with, with attractive yields in reach of, of millennials and Gen Z's and allow for household formation for millennials and Gen Z's um, who currently are completely priced out of um, any options for shelter in most U S Canadian and many European cities. So you know, there. I, I actually just to turn that into a bit of a question. I'm just wondering whether maybe the Fed decides that they're a little bit more dovish on rates, and instead they may move to um, maybe preserve rates a little lower than the market is currently anticipating, but allow for more aggressive balance sheet runoffs. Have, have you contemplated this? Yes, I've been thinking a lot about this. So, on your question, yes, your argument. Make, first of all, the first part of the argument, yes, it makes sense. 
I, and you could argue back and forward on this. All I was just trying to say that if the rise in real wages on the lower percentile is a desirable thing, then uh, you should take care not to stop this process if you think of this process desirable. And I don't even know if, if you can make political arguments whether it's desirable or not, but I'm just saying like if you want it to be desirable, if it's desirable that real wages on the lower end are actually rising, then maybe it's you, you want to preserve the environment. That's all I'm trying to say, right? Right. Uh, what to do with assets? I have given a lot of thought on this. And actually, as a matter of fact, I'll confess I was a little blind, blindsided. Part of the reason Fed policy makes absolutely no sense. For me, it seems to me completely unhinged. And I'm not a person to criticize the Fed. I actually think that they're doing their best. So they might be seeing things I don't see. And they have their own arguments. I don't think, like, I'm not one of those people who say they're, like, clueless, they're detached. They're smart people trying to do their best. That's just it's not often what I what I would have done. But again, my job as a trader is not to figure out what they should do, but how to capitalize on what they actually do, right? With this caveat, it makes a ton of sense. It would, again, if you put me in their seat, knowing what I know now, and I probably would have known more in their seat, I would just say like no raising rates, maybe like 25 basis point hike just to stabilize money markets and very aggressive balance sheet unwind. Mm -hmm. Why do you want to raise interest rate on your own liability, which is the excess reserve? And to your point, it might work better to deflate asset prices. And honestly, if they really wanted to deflate something like real estate, probably the best way to do this would be to ch change tax policies, not to, not, to, not to raise rates. The best way would be to like kill some of the real estate deductions, right? Yeah. Not that I'm not talking about the mortgage deduction, but a lot of other things that exist. That we'll change the, the more mortgage structures. You know, well, thirty-year mortgages for the resale of primary residence. Yep. Uh, change maybe maybe abolish ten thirty-one rule. Yep. It's like this. There's a lot of things they can do, which I think would be hard politically. But on the other hand, uh, if that's the object, if that's the objective, what I'm saying, right? If the objective is specifically to deflate and more, more affordable things, you could do on the policy on the policy side, not on a necessarily on the monetary side, right? That's what I'm trying to say. And right. and to your point, it would make total sense for me to run off the balance sheet because they kind of almost like committed themselves on not being able to reduce the balance sheet. They're saying they will, but they won't. Because if you hike rates and then you have a recession, you cannot start reducing how much balance sheet reduction are they going to do? Reduce it by like hundred billion dollars and then they have to go that way again. That's like ever-ending trap. And also what happened to good old LIFO, last in, first out. We started by cutting rates and building balance sheet. So let's unwind balance sheet and then raise rates. Exactly, yes. And uh, I don't know why the thinking is, and I honestly anticipated the thinking to be more that way. And I was blindsided by the fact that they, not blindsided, but I was surprised by the fact that they chose to be very aggressive in terms of projecting hiking without being aggressive at all about, they were very kind of slow and methodic about tapering and then about like they could have tapered much faster this time, right? Like what, what are they doing? They were like buying bonds this winter still while there are inflationary concerns. If they're concerned about inflation, why are you buying bonds still, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> just, I think it just really kind of seems a little weird to me. Like, I wanna, why can't they just start running off the balance sheet aggressively now, right? Exactly. Yeah, Galax, I want to pull on the thread that you were mentioning earlier about fiscal policy. So you might argue that 
the uh, hike, the the rise in oil prices acts uh, as an indirect tax in uh, for consumers and, and income tax in general. And I'm sure we're going to get into later in the conversation about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. But to linger just on the uncertainty around energy prices right now, you also have this dynamic where uh, people have been discussing this more and more about this fiscal cliff that is approaching. The Build Back, Back Better uh, plan did not pass in Congress. There's no prospect, especially if there's a sweep in the midterms for uh, any meaningful uh, fiscal expansion to happen. So if you consider that we are already facing uh, this this uh, fiscal headwind in the U.S. with the addition of the energy uncertainty. Isn't there a case to be made that the Fed should actually be considering uh, <laughs> slowing down or even reversing course uh, with regards to their rhetoric to, to soften the blow that is likely to come if, if these things do materialize? That definitely would, would, would make sense to me. And that's why I would favor being very patient rate hikes and just but be front load runoff of the balance sheet because that's something like you can kind of soften the things with that. What I think is going to happen now is they're going to hike rates. They possibly will have a chance to start running off the balance sheet. They're going to have to pause the hikes very quickly. Maybe they'll get one or two hikes this year. And then, uh, but the balance sheet runoff will be late started and running in the background. And it's like back to my wave analogy, they'll be off phase. And that was balance sheet runoff might come in late, might cause enough of a continuing tightening of financial conditions in addition to the fiscal uh, issues that you just mentioned. And it's kind of, as I said, an argument whether energy costs serves as a tax or not, but or whether like a general fear factor is a, like we had COVID slowing us down, but who knows, maybe the war in Europe is also will kind of cause some caution on people in terms of traveling and uh, might be some kind of negative. Typically wars are inflationary, but there could be an, a component of a negative growth shock there too. So between all the shocks, uh, yeah, that's why I'm kind of biased to think that we're going to be easing in not that distant future. If if Mr. Powell doesn't stumble into another policy error like 2018. Well, like, well he will. Well, the, the, the easing is a response to the there policy. Is a, uh, there is a quote that I used in my book too. Uh, I think it's like um, Grant Williams said it. Um, Fed always hikes till they break something. So you cannot, we cannot count on them to preemptively get very dovish. I think they're in the corner, but they'll be hawkish relative to where they should be. And they, they will have to be put before the reality. Now, a very strong sell-off in stock market will change. Remember what I said earlier about like the zeitgeist, the feeling of persistence. When stock market is down, it's much easier to convince yourself that psychologically. So imagine there's a day that Nasdaq is down 2.5%, or versus the day when Nasdaq is up 2.5%. Really, it's only a 5% difference, not that big, right? One day move. But on that day when Nasdaq is down 2.5%, it's much easier even for me to convince myself that the economy is going into recession. It's a very subtle psychological condition that's happening. So if the Fed, not because they're trying to like prop stock market and save rich people in some kind of corrupt way that people often talk about. It's just a psychological conditioning. They see assets getting weaker. Eventually it spills into things which are more in the purview, like funding. They see funding getting tighter here and their credit spreads going wide, assets going weaker. That'll, then it's easier for them to find the pretext to become more dovish. Then next time they see a 
mixed economic number, they'll see like, huh, maybe we can stop, right? Yeah. At first, their reaction is their first reaction is like, ah, oh, stock market corrected ten percent. Who cares, right? That's not our that's not our purview. That's fine. It was overvalued anyway. This is their first line of thinking, and we cannot really get them to think otherwise. Uh, they, we cannot. I, as, as a matter of fact, like people always talk about like Powell food, the Greenspan food. I was not always surprised of how much this food exists, but how much it does not exist. They actually don't. Like if you look at the actual timing on the action, they don't react to stock market. They still tightened in 2018, in December 2018. They still tightened in May 2020 when there were corrections happening in stock markets. They need to see that in a combination of some economic data, but it will bias them to being more responsive to economic data. That's what I'm trying to say. The challenge over the last decade or so has been that their the response of the Fed when they do decide that they're going to um, pivot, you know, QE QE two, QE three, Operation Twist, etc. It drives moves in asset prices that are so asymmetrically out of proportion to the upside relative to what they're willing to tolerate on the downside, right? So this is one dynamic that I think is really has 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 this has this strange trap property to it for for the Fed, where they are willing to institute stimulus measures that drive asset prices higher by 50 to 100% over, you know, a 15 to 24 month period. And then they react when markets drop by 15 to 20%, right? So you're correcting a small fraction of the damage that you did on the upside. Um, but, but you're not allowing, you know, the, the balloon just keeps, you've got this massive, increase in the size of the balloon, you get a minor contraction, and then you get this massive asymmetric support again, right? The, the question for me is, can, can A, can this dynamic go on forever? Can can market PEs go, you know, to, to maybe back to 2000 levels, or maybe, maybe to where we saw the Nikkei in 1989? Can cap rates on real estate go to, you know, from, from, Three percent to two percent to one percent. I guess invoking Stein's law, which is if something can't go on forever, it'll stop. Right? This this type of dynamic seems to me to be unsustainable, and and is now an opportunity for the Fed to 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 acknowledge these errors of the of the last ten years, and at least allow their balance sheet to run off, allow some of the air to come out of the asset bubble keep rates low and, you know, do what they can to kind of preserve um, economic growth. So it sort of stumbles along still, right? Is, is that, do you think that might be on the minds of some central bankers here? Well, let me first address the first thing that I have that uh, you said about this whole thing, which I did notice this pattern a lot too. Yes, we get like 100% growth in stock market and that's okay. And then 20% correction, that's panic. I'm totally, and one argument that can be made that overall economic growth, at least in the United States, is so fragile that it kind of relies on this continuously running stock market. And when a stock market, even flat stock market is not good enough. And as you, the more you get higher, the more like as, as a lot of debt and financialization and leverage in the economy grows. So like 
economy to grow has to grow that thing so fast that when you get like you cannot you can sustain small and small corrections without a hit to growth maybe we possibly COVID let us get up like delivered us a little bit and let us get out of this thing. dynamic being so sensitive but again patterns tell us that corrections lead to growth slowdowns very often right but that is the first the first argument and is the second argument uh so, so, so sorry your question was about can you repeat this last portion of your question sorry yeah it was just do you think that some central bankers are now are, are beginning to look at asset prices as actually a fundamental problem that needs to be addressed now because they've already kicked the can they, there's been a series yeah. of policy errors that have now painted them into a corner if they re- if they repeat this again, maybe they will never be able to escape from this corner without without such dramatic repercussions that that it would be so unpalatable for everybody. Well, yeah, that's def- well. I'm sure they're asking those questions first of all, and I just wanted to tie in. Uh, that's the reason I wanted to ask you to repeat. I wanted to tie in what I was saying before with what I'm saying now, and make sure I didn't lose my thread. So um, you you brought up earlier, like. Where can P go, right? What is sustainable and what is not? My problem with this is, and there's two, again, two worrying ideas. One of them, when I talk about historical patterns, and historical patterns say that this is not sustainable, that, you know, every once in a while, valuations run ahead, and people make an argument why this time that's sustainable, and you always end up buying stock market 70% cheaper if you, if you are courageous enough. And I kind of believe that last year, I believe it now that we'll buy stock market most likely much cheaper than it is today, even in the next couple of years. That there will be a moment and you can buy it cheaper. I used to do those polls in 2018. I would like poll people and say, or 2017, like, raise your hands if you think in the next five years you can buy stock market cheaper than today. And almost everybody said yes. And I was like, why are you long? Right? <laughs> why, why don't you wait till you buy it cheaper? Right? So, um, that was my position. It still happened to be kind of my position, but it is important to also understand that historical pattern is almost the only thing we'll have to guide us with respect to valuations. There is no rule what P should be. What is the P of gold? What is the P of Bitcoin? If we're starting to think of mega caps, like Google's and Amazon's of the world as just a store of value, then as long as they're not, like if they were losing money, that would be unsustainable probably. But they can sustain it for a long time, but not forever. But if they're actually making a little bit of money and they're beginning to be dominant and the stock remains liquid, they could say, like, ah, Google stock better than treasuries, right? Let's just, who cares if they yield 1.5% when treasuries yield 50 cents, right? Why not? You can very easily make those arguments. What happened in 2000 when this is my perception of the reality of 2000? Then peace got out of control, valuations got out of control, and how did people arbit? They arbit, by, they arbit by supply. People started to pour IPOs on the market. And they basically choked the money demand with IPO, the demand with IPOs. And they like, oh, I can just get five guys together or whatever, guys, women, whatever, and say, uh, we're going to start a company which has no business plan, but we're going to do something and put that com, sell it for $100 million. Well, people start doing it till eventually the market get oversupplied. Now, is this the environment we're seeing right now? In some sense, not so much, because what happened between 2000 and now, we went to very much to this 
super winner-takes all economy. So actually starting like a small search engine company is really not a very good business, right? Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just wanted to, uh, you, you mentioned, you, you framed the, uh, the conversation surrounding tech mega caps as a potential store of value. So that, that just made me curious to think a little bit more of, uh, about your uh, investment and trading framework and how you sort of operate in the, the global asset class scale. And then I thought this might be a good way for us to shift gears into talking a little bit about your book. And, and for, for that, if you could set the stage into some of the asset classes and instruments that you uh, look at and that you trade in, and then maybe walk us through a little bit about, from a 30,000 foot view, what happened in March 2020, okay. from your view. Well, that's a big, that's a very broad question, but I'll see what I can do in the next few minutes, right? So, uh, first of all, I try, I do global macro, which means I basically dou can double on anything I want to double on. Obviously, I cannot be an expert on everything, so I probably do less research, kind of individual stocks or credits. I don't, cannot know anything about them. If I like gold, I might buy gold, or I might buy gold mining index, right? If, will I buy individual gold miners? Well, maybe if I like some research on them, but it's not kind of my core. I don't come to my whatever meetings internally and say like, hey, I like this company which does this widget. Let's see if it, it can buy them. I look more about like asset classes. And what is important about my approach, I don't feel that I have to be always like short along stock market, short along euro, short along interest rates. I don't have to have a view on any of the core macro assets. I could have no view on dollar euro at any given moment. What I try to do, I try to find places where I have, according to my criteria, skewed odds in my favor and focus on those. And wherever I can, build a balanced portfolio out of those trades. Now, when crisis like pandemic hits, uh, Obviously, you had your positioning before that, and a lot of I talk a lot about my book about how you can position, why we position certain ways, and also certain ways that you can, on occasion, have kind of a free crisis protection options or really cheap crisis protection options, and I've used them a lot in 2020. There was setup was not as favorable for me, for example, this time. Things that you would need to buy, you would want to buy if you were thinking about. Uh, the war getting out of hand in Europe were not free, even if you had that view, right? It wouldn't be cheap or free to protect yourself against that situation right now. But in 2020, it was cheap or free to protect yourself against pandemic. And when it's cheap or free, I do it, right? So, but when the crisis actually does happen, uh, the most important challenge of the trader is to just kind of leave behind what you had before crisis in a sense like, Okay, those are the positions. We made money and we lost money. We got lucky and we made money and we got unlucky and we lost money. Now we have a new portfolio. And what should we do with this portfolio throughout crisis? I talk a lot about, I might maybe string a little bit to your question, but it's a good segue into this. In the book, in my book, The Trades of March 2020, I used all the poker analogy. If you're on a winning night, like you're up money, you're feeling good about your game, you're feeling relaxed, you have time to go get yourself a drink, go to the bathroom, you know, freshen your face. Maybe it's a long poker session, but you're winning. You will have the advantage. I think this was also, what is it, the movie Hustler about pool, right? Too? And they also show like one guy, like 
keep playing and drinking and another guy is like taking a break, relaxing and right. So this is how you, this is how you win by having studying with a winning hand. It's much harder if crisis blindsides you if you're under pressure and this time like your portfolio was not well prepared for it. And honestly, it's 50-50. You're not going to be prepared. In my career, whenever an exogenous event happens, sometimes it's favorable, sometimes it's unfavorable. It's very, you cannot be always, you're not going to be so lucky that every time there's something big, truly unpredictable happens in your position and direction. So if it's against you, you have to take your losses, right? And then you think like, okay, so no, what do I do next? How do, what positions do I hold to? What I can, new I can put on and how to take advantage of it. And the key, so I made a subtitle uh, for my book, uh, for my pandemic book, A Shield Against Uncertainty. What I meant by this is that, like how those environments are very uncertain. We, we knew how uncertain it was during the pandemic. Nobody knew like how bad it is, how it's gonna spread, what are gonna be the policy responses. We really didn't know what was happening. And right now we really, there's a lot of like, theorizing about geopolitical situation, but people are projecting anything from peace talks and ceasefire within 24 hours to nuclear war, right? We're having such a wide range of possibilities. Honestly, I don't think anybody knows a really clear answer of how, what's gonna happen, even on a very short horizon. And markets are gyrating with these mood swings. The idea, what I did in the pandemic times and what trying to do now and what I think other traders trying to do now is to see what it is that we can kind of see through this events, what things are certain. Are there any bets that in every reasonable scenario will eventually converge? Because there are some things that don't have to converge. Like, for example, will Russian economy recover? Like, will Russia ever become reintegrated in the world community? You can make odds on it, but there is no uh, specific like, reason or belief. Russia could go the way of like Iran and Venezuela, right? After this war, it, it's possible. There are precedents to such things happening, right? Or it could be have uh, somehow negotiated settlements, some changes, and basically kind of be put back, put behind us in a year or two, right? All of those are possibilities. Hard to bet on that. Will um, what's going to happen to oil prices in the next few weeks? Very hard to imagine. But just as during COVID, I think. Uh, during COVID, I thought that, well, oil prices went very low, but two, three years from there, one of the other way pandemic will pass. So the forward oil contracts to me, when I was looking at 2022, 2023 oil, I was like, well, it's gonna normalize to like $60, right? Now I didn't think, and I didn't bet on going to 110. I wish I would did, of course, but that's not my what I was speculating on. I was just thinking that it's gonna go from 35 to 65, back to normal, whichever way the pandemic will play out. Because what I knew during the pandemic, this is what I talked about, like the mantra was that pandemic will pass, liquidity will stay. During pandemic, we knew that uh, the policymakers will keep adding liquidity till it becomes excessive. And that was the game to play in March and after March 2020. So that's the game I try to play. Not bad on how quickly liquidity will arrive, what's gonna happen to the virus, but the fact that eventually there will be enough liquidity and things that benefit from it will go up. Uh, how do we play it now? It's hard to tell, but obviously like we're in it. How do you play it now? What do you look at? Uh, with energy, I think my 
My guess is that energy will normalize to some trends which were fundamental to it before this crisis. But there could be some changes because Europe can move to more energy independence. Many countries can increase production. People will like try to decouple. If Russia is allowed to sell energy again, they might sell more than before to for economic recovery. There is all those things that could be looked at. So I actually think that long-term perspective for energy became more negative than they were two months ago. But it's a hard bet to make. I'm kind of betting on the fact that Europe will restabilize and come back, possibly with less energy dependence, but uh, most likely with a they are pretty fiscally aggressive and their fiscal aggressiveness, military budgets are going up. They'll have more fiscal expenditure. So I think uh, there are some opportunities in that world, like of just kind of Euro Europe stabilizing and possibly European stock markets doing better than on a relative basis, possibly Euro doing better on the crosses going forward, Euro and pound, I think. Uh, for example, there are like defensive things. If you think it's hard to judge like where you think Euro Swiss or Euro Yen should be those defensive crosses. So like people are panicking, they're selling Euro, they're buying Swiss franc. But if you really think about this, one way or another, the situation will resolve. So if you don't think Swiss franc belongs at 100, if you think it belongs at 105 and 110, if you buy it now, sooner or later, the situation will resolve. And then Euro Swiss will go to the certain other place. If you think that Euro Yen belongs at 135 rather than 125, again, once the situation will resolve one way or another, <clears throat> it'll, it'll, it'll uh, normalize. Of course, there are off-chance scenarios of very severe escalation, nuclear incidents, or maybe even just a really protracted war, which uh, something like replay of the Great Northern War of early 1700s, when whole Northern Europe gets pulled into something. Yeah, you can look at those outlier scenarios. Just as with pandemic, we could say, like, what if COVID gets so bad that we're shut down for five years, right? But we have to take our chances. Those are clearly low probability scenarios. Like, there is no argument that the likelihood is that one way or another, with whatever the fate will be of the Ukraine or Russia, situation will stabilize in Western Europe. So there might be potential for bets there on that long, long horizon bets. So sketch out for us, if you wouldn't mind, your base case scenario for what you're witnessing uh, right now. Uh, I guess how you believe the uh, the current conflict will resolve itself, what, what kind of equilibrium we're going to find ourselves in, and what that means for uh, capital allocations. Well, as I said, it's very difficult to sorry, it's very difficult for me to say how this conflict will be resolved. And honestly, I was the worst predictor of this conflict so far because I really couldn't see the all-out war happening. I know it was one, it was like, we had all this game, we had all the research people lay out scenarios, including the one that is happening, that was gained, but it's in such a low probability because it just, just as I said, like I, people know something I don't know, but just as what central bankers earlier we discussed don't, doesn't make sense what they're doing. So completely leaving the humanitarian and ethical side of it, the moral side of it aside, strategically, what is happening is be, was befuddling to me. Like, and I'm trying to find some now post-factum strategic rationales for what, is various, what various parties are trying to accomplish and why they're trying to do this in certain ways, uh, kind of like what negotiating tactics they're planning to use to get out of this. And there are several, there are several parties here. There's the West, there is Russia, there is Ukraine, 
there might be some other more subtly involved parties, right? Uh, China and so on, right? How are they all going to untangle this? Because I think like everybody wants to untangle at some point. Uh, but uh, again, maybe that's a wrong assumption. Maybe somebody doesn't want to untangle at all. Maybe somebody wants a 20-year war. And you, it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's hard to feel like there, you can definitely see various paths of resolution, a lot of them. Um, I was surprised on the military developments. I was surprised, you know, people were surprised by how to say the fierceness of fighting and the fierceness of resistance in Ukraine. Many people thought maybe that Ukraine will just play possum if these things happen. Mm-hmm. Or many people, including myself, would think that if incursions were to occur, they wouldn't be so broad and would just be restricted to certain areas. So the whole thing just spun out into something that, honestly, I would give less than 1% chance probability if you asked me just a few weeks ago. And how it's the different paths to resolution, right? You could people just could suddenly negotiate his fire and find some kind of solution that allows everybody to face. You could have Russia gain significant military gains and then negotiate itself out of it and say, okay, well now we're there. Now we're gonna give give us this and we're gonna pull back, right? Are there are there any of those sort of cheap free hedges that are available out there or are they have all passed at the moment? I think it's hard to be it's hard to be cheap or free. Honestly, I will be right now. If there was something free, I probably wouldn't be talking about this right now on, a, right. on, on, on the broadcast. That I full disclosure, if there was something very subtle, huge misprice, I would probably be first loading up on this and then Yeah, you'd want to get your position on and then you'd tell everybody. So, yeah. and I'm not really want to talk my book. I don't try to do this very much. Like I, I don't believe in like putting position on and then getting other people involved. I rather prefer because I don't want other speculators on my positions because they're only going to mess me up. I just want to put position on and wait for normal economic forces to resolve. What I think is what I think is the different. What I think opportunities lies in the fact that various things are priced for various levels of Armageddon, and that was true of every crisis. It's true of September 11th. It's true of global financial crisis. I mentioned it in my books. I operated thinking about it during COVID. What you try to do is always sell what's whatever is priced that everything is honky-dory and buy whatever is priced as if it's the end of the world. That is kind of the approach, right? You think about, huh, there are some interesting opportunities in markets which are somewhat niche markets. Uh, things of just, in my opinion, for example, there is markets which are pricing, priced as if rates will never go up at all in the world, like I'm gonna be zero forever. And uh, there are things which are priced in such a way that oh, it's, uh, really rates are really high and everything is great. So there is like all this disconnect. I think opportunities may lie within disconnects and opportunities may lie within things which I think have very high probability of snapping back. Like uh, when I mentioned, for example, Eurocrosses, like Eurosuisse, I think it just has a good opportunity of snapping back. I'm just using it as an example. But it's not free. You could go 5 10% against you. I just think like five years from now, assuming I, I see the world in which there is no war in Europe going on, hopefully, right? And I see the world in which Euro actually potentially is off the zero interest, negative interest rate policy. I'm seeing Europe caring positively against 
uh, currencies like Swiss franc and being a little stronger. So and you're seeing some economic growth then? Bounce into something like 120 level against dollar because that seems to be the kind of historical magnet for euro. Well, yeah, the pago idea in Europe is thawing, right? Like you're starting to see even the most hawkish, fiscally austere German central bankers and government representatives talking about the need for, you know, um, pretty substantial fiscal balance sheet, ex you know, expansion, right? They're talking about pretty substantial investments in defense. And once you begin to open the door to deficit spending, I think we're going to find that once that once there's a foot in the door, that there's going to be a lot of appetite for more fiscal expansion and it, that that will, once the Germans open the door to deficit spending and, and fiscal uh, stimulus, then, I mean, it, obviously Southern Europe has been chomping at the bit for mm, the yeah. ability to loosen the purse strings. And I'm sure France would, would be happy to follow suit. And, and so, you know, if, if Germany is already making moves in that direction, there certainly is an argument that yes, we're going to see much looser purse strings, some a pretty substantial amount of deficit spending, major uh, escalation in economic growth in Europe, potentially relative to the U.S., and that could be positive for the euro crosses. Yeah, I'm generally yes, and I generally I generally believe that fiscal expansion, deficit spending, is actually good for domestic currency. Because a lot for developed markets, because a lot of people have this knee-jerk reaction, oh, there's a deficit and bad, bad for the currency. But the reality is, in the U.S. situation, yes, U.S. story would be like, we have a deficit, so we issue more bonds. Well, someone has to buy them, and to buy them, they have to buy dollar. And assuming that they are not all, he not all hedging, right, they, they start on, a, on an incremental, it creates actually buyers for those extra bonds, which it's kind of an extra dollar product we make. So it drives capital account surplus. That has been my kind of assumption. Maybe it is not mm -hmm. very substantiated because I'm not an economist, but I felt that historically fiscal expansion is actually good for domestic currency. And I think in Euro land, fiscal expansion would be good for getting off negative rate policy, which exactly. I don't think anybody really wants to stay at. But other countries like Switzerland are trapped much deeper in the negative rate policy. And, and nowhere in a hurry to get off it with your Swiss at 100. Yeah, to, to stay in the sort of the three larger uh, currencies, I guess the euro, the dollar, and, and the yen, and, and, and to borrow from uh, El Aria and the idea of the cleanest, dirty shirt, right? Currencies are a relative game, obviously. And because we're all in this debt overhang period, what does that mean for the ability to continue down this road of deficit spending? And are, are, are we looking at debt monetization? Are we looking at NMT? Is, is this where we're headed in terms of uh, uh, policy directions? And, and, and what does that mean for this relative cleanest dirty shirt uh, currency game? Well, I think when it comes to debt, I might be a little bit of a closet MMT here. Not really an MMT, but like a tiny bit of an MMT in the closet. But I just don't think that sovereign debt is a big issue uh, for countries which have uh, not, don't have like for debt and other currencies. So they don't have 
countries like US and Europe, which don't really have it for especially Japan, which have no fear of balance of payments crisis. They can fund in their own currency. It's not as much of an issue. And an issue is kind of chickens come to roost is when you have inflation. And even the hardest core MMT people agree with this, but you have to deal with inflation. But to me, yes, but to me, they already won that game because you see if you can issue the debt and then buy back one third of it or half of it with the central bank, you kind of won the game because uh, what happens next? If people, if you have inflation problem, all you have to do is just sell your balance sheet and you can uh, solve the inflation problem. But who's buying your, your balance sheet unless you're, you're resorting to capital controls and financial repression and forcing, I guess, uh, insurance companies and, and reinsurance companies to own your government debt because it's the pristine collateral that they need to uh, uh, build their balance sheets with? Well, you know, it almost doesn't matter who is buying it because say you sell, you need to sell 100 billion tenure notes and you might not sell them directly. It could be through runoff, right? But you just put them on the market and say like, okay, buy them. Uh, so maybe they'll buy them cheaper, but at some point they'll clear. Now, will rates rise? Well, no kidding. If we're fighting inflation, the rates will rise. If you're doing it for the purpose of fighting inflation, yes, the outcome of it, the yield could long-term or temporarily go up. Now, the history shows that this increasing supply doesn't actually cause yields to go up. But even if they did, it would be like, yes, Sherlock, we're fighting inflation, we tighten financial conditions, rates went up, right? So, but it's actually not what even happens necessarily. Like so, if you look at supply of treasury bonds, it didn't really correlate very strongly with interest rates historically, or if, if anything correlated negatively with interest rates. Interesting. Uh, can we maybe shift to equities a little bit? Because I don't know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you're seeing in, in global equity markets and what I think uh, I've noticed in this correction so far is that it's had much more of, of the character that we, those of us who kind of grew up and, and observed markets in the, in the nineties and early two thousands and, and mid two thousands came to expect where the, we had these sort of rolling tops yeah. and these more sort of staged uh, drawdowns with, with big bear market rallies. But, you know, we haven't seen a massive spike in credit spreads. Um, the credit markets certainly don't seem like they're panicking. VIX until, and I didn't look at it today, but you know, until certainly yesterday, the day before, we're still seeing VIX well below 40. Um, any, any thoughts on the character of this current equity market move? And I mean, you've already sort of stated that your some of your other signals are flashing red for equities, but maybe comment on the character of the current equity market correction and, and in the context of some of your other signals, maybe what, what investors might expect over the next few months. Um, well, for me, uh, this has a feel what is happening in the U.S. market, kind of the, in terms of just intuitive feel, it has a feel of a grinding bear market. Yeah. Which is something we actually hadn't seen for a while. Because we had a few sharp, Stock market, we've always had a COVID. Before COVID, the, there was a really sharp and also precipitous sell-off in 2000, end of 2018. There were some corrections in like 2015, 2016, but none of them had that feel of grinding bear market. And I wonder if the last grinding bear market was in 2008. 
and even that was really hectic. Mm-hmm. But I think that probably portions of 2008 it would feel like that, right? The 2007-2009 bear market, which was very severe, obviously, and protracted. A lot of chaos, all the events. But right now, it almost feels like even something pre those times, some kind of like a phenomena that, you know, the 21st century market. It yeah, like a 1990 feels, recession style or... Yeah, or uh, like a 20th century market right now, which is, yeah. by the way, somewhat absurd support the narrative that we're in a different world because inflation is higher, right? But that feel of grinding bear market is actually not even that familiar to me, at least not in the recent years. And I could be totally wrong, but that kind of thing when you just, yeah, you see, in the past, like it's a sell-off and you have it to bounce days and you're like, good, back to bull market. And, and I was like, ah, maybe not, maybe it just keeps. So, so a 70s style, you've got Inflation, you've got an oil price shock. I don't know. Is that is that sort of what you're a decade long, lots of vol, yeah, down lots, then recover but never break out to a new high, down again. Yeah, something like that. What is interesting, there were some similarities between what happened in seventy-four and what happened in the Great Recession of 08. Hmm. Like the blowout and credit spreads, the blowout and things like was actually happened back then too. And there's uh, magnitude of stock correction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but the environments were still very different. And yes, it's maybe I haven't traded in services, but yeah. it's very hard to get a good feel just looking at charts of how it felt. It's always easy to compare with the days that you traded, even if obviously you can nowadays look at charts hundreds years back. But there is this feel of uh, something different this time that this is a grinding bear market. I guess the main current assumption. Yeah, the main difference with the 1970s is that we left the gold standard in the 1970s. And since then, we've been in a, in an economic model, a global economic uh, mm. model that leans on the U.S. dollar heavily. So to, think, to, to, to pull on that a little bit, the, the U.S. dollar cycle has been sort of one of the main drivers of relative asset class performance. And so the last 10 to 12 years, we've observed U.S. dollar being very strong and then the U.S. 60-40 being sort of the, the, the dominant, the, uh, the only game in town, along with U.S. Uh, real estate and, and, and so on. And then now all of a sudden we are seeing inflation and more dispersion across asset class returns. What are your thoughts on that? And, and, and if you could comment on the U.S. dollar specifically and to what extent do you think that perhaps sanctions and not to get into the merit of the sanctions themselves, but the more the U.S. dollar becomes weaponized, the more it drives other countries to seek alternatives from the U.S. dollar and, 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 and how that might play out for, from an asset class perspective. Well, there is a lot there to cover, but yes to most of it. One thing just to go back to what you said in the very beginning of this portion, when you talked more about comparing 70s to the current environment, I just want to make one comment about this um, and about the changes. One thing that is very different right now is that we have a very different demographic situation. We don't have a huge amount of people entering labor force like in the 70s. So the growth potential is much worse. So we're kind of facing this, but with much worse potential growth. But as you say, economy dollar has, uh, there is no like gold standard or anything like this. There is a kind of new world order. There is global, globalization and now possibly some partial deglobalization. I'll be honest, I find myself very conflicted on the dollar. 
I find that it's hard to play the dollar right now because there is a lot, like my buyers for first after 2020 to be short dollar because I was foreseeing the cycle similar to 2004, 2007. I thought we'd have kind of like a slow way to get to, to tightening in a very slow, reluctant way and precious metals will go up dramatically. I was not talking gold 1900, I was talking gold 3000, right? I was thinking that um, dollar will weaken broadly too, most, more likely than not. And that was kind of my bias. I thought that emerging markets will do well. Obviously, they did hor horrifically badly. Mm -hmm. I thought they would do well, like as they did in 2004, 2006. And I had to kind of reposition and rethink my thesis and start being a little bit more pro-dollar when I realized that, well, it looks like they're going to be really hawkish. However, what is interesting is that dollar usually actually sells off at the end of the hiking cycle. So we could have a correction in the dollar. I still think that long term, I'm probably positive on precious metals. It's similar, like, well, all is good and done, like this hawkish periods. Precious metals are not so much about inflation, it's about liquidity. Maybe right now liquidity will tighten, but in the long run, central banks will probably err on the side of providing liquidity. And uh, precious metals will probably do well. So, or at least the upside is just, if you think about like even silver going to zero versus silver going to 50, $60, which I think is a very reasonable target. Or the risk reward is skewed favorably to precious metals to hold them for a long time. So there are, however, a dollar versus euro, I think actually risk reward is slightly skewed towards euro being at some point hitting 120 and will it carry, of course, obviously there's a negative carry on being long euro. So by the time it gets there, maybe it'll be just the same as kind of a wash, right? But I don't think, if you think that rates in US are not gonna go as high, what, what I'm having trouble with, for example, thinking about dollar euro is because if you make an assumption that the hikes will be as aggressive as they are, you probably wanna be actually long dollar against currencies which are not hiking so much. And maybe, but maybe you can still be short dollar against some other currencies which are very aggressive, like New Zealand and Australia, right? If you think that the economy is all over, however, you want to be short those currencies because they are very beta driven. Basically, I can paint so many pro and con arguments. I, I wish I could tell you, I know people who are very bullish on dollar here. I wish I could tell you all in. This is my view. I'm not, I'm not so much centering my right now. For me, like Euro is more interesting right now because I feel it's got really beat up because of this war, but I don't feel it's a long-term damage to where Euro is going to be. Like, I don't see why this war five years from now, how this war will affect Euro. I, don't, I, I think like this war will affect Euro, if anything, positively in terms of where it's going to be five years from now. How do you hedge the... I mean, I think I think... Your central thesis is that whatever, two years from now, three years from now, five years from now, um, this this conflict will have passed and there'll be some reversion to equilibrium. How do you hedge the, um, the, the less likely case of moving to, you know, disequilibrium? or, you know, substantial escalation here? And first of all, what might substantial escalation look like? And then, and then how, do you, how do you potentially hedge your, um, your wealth and your life against, against some of those scenarios? 
So there's this is this is a complicated question because you have to be really careful what it is that you're like hedging. For example, if you worry, if your worry is a like if you're a typical person who wants economic growth to be stronger, like you have your house, your business, whatever, and you're worried about lower economic growth, I think we are at the place where risk parity, which was kind of for a while put on hold, now is back. I think being betting on lower interest rates is a good hedge against things rolling over. But you have to be careful about that because will, uh, for example, just escalation in Europe and kind of inflationary shocks from it not be ameliorated by interest rates because you could have interest rates continue rising. You might want to have some bets which actually perform well in inflation and rising interest rates. Uh, you 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 want to co cover you might have to cover like more than just two scenarios here what i'm trying to say you right. can think about like okay excess liquidity hedges are typically hard assets cryptocurrencies precious metals uh, hedges against uh strong very aggressive fed kind of fed be, being with it it's a vice versa strong do dollar right being stronger but there are also some to to hedge that and to hedge a real escalation of war, I'm afraid you need to go to niche markets. You need to say like, okay, well, I see some interesting opportunities in municipal markets, for example. I think huge misprices on municipal markets in the event that rates actually do go up. So you could make some interesting trades there, which most people are not available, right? If you want to bet on a escalation of war and buy defense contractors or somebody like anything to do with nuclear security or something, right? You could, you could, you, you might have to get creative here. It's not simple what I'm trying to say. You might have to get creative because what are you going to do around short ruble? Too late, right? <laughs> are you going to, if you were smart enough to short ruble several weeks ago, if you saw that this is going to get out of control and see ruble at like high 70s and think, oh, maybe it is reward is here. If it gets out of control, ruble is going to lose 30, 40% of its value. Kudos to you, right? Uh, um, but it's not a cheap. It's not. It wasn't a cheap bet because ruble was carrying positively. Ruble normally it's a, like Russia is a country with no external debt, no public debt at all. There is normally no pressure on Russian currencies whatsoever. The only pressure is capital flight. People taking ruble, like converting the rubles into dollars to buy assets overseas. That's the only real outflow. Everything else is inflows, right? So uh, why you? Uh, so it's not a cheap and easy bet, but if you were courageous enough to do it, great. How to hedge through this? I think rates offer good asymmetric opportunities because, as I say, I think in U.S. rates are good opportunity and maybe Australian and New Zealand rates are good opportunities because I think they will be zero two or three years from now with or without escalation. And I think escalation of war will not cause rates to actually go higher, but even with it might cause them to go lower just because of the panic. But on the other hand, you can win this game even without the war, I think. So that's why I like being some more, some make having some bets on rates being lower two, three years from now in this group of countries and maybe converging and rates in Europe, meanwhile, normalizing. So I can see a scenario where, for example, rates are zero both in the US and Europe two, three years from now. It's an extreme kind of convergence because probably events that will cause U.S. rates to go to zero will cause euro rates to stay negative, but kind of, and I see the convergence basically. I see some convergence there more likely, and those could be interesting, but how to 
make money on extreme escalation of war. I mean, probably precious metals will do well in extreme escalation of war. Are you surprised at how, like, I've been looking at the implied vol on, on gold, and I was shocked that, to, to see that, you know, um, even, even far out of the money, but like, but nearer the money, the implied vol on gold is in, is in the low 20s. And I mean, that seems like potentially fairly cheap insurance at the moment um, to buy some, you know, out of the money exposure to gold or maybe to silver, you know, to, to, to precious in general. Um, just wondering whether or not you've been seeing that and whether you've no, I think, I think this, is a, this is a, not a bad idea because, and I've been thinking in those terms in general, like looking for various options in the world. So wherever, because when the price is dislocated severely, but the option price is not went super high, the areas where optionality is very high in the options, areas where it went up, but not as catastrophically high as it might have, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When, when there is a such dislocations, because one of the two things will happen, either things will keep getting worse and more catastrophic, in which case the vol will stay high, or at least there will be a big snap back to normal pricing level, which will be a big move, right? So in either case, either you get a big move, which could be a grinding move, but at least it will be directional, right? Or you'll have a continuous chaos in which either case it's okay to own options. So yes, I'm looking for some of the option strategies. Vol is not cheap, but where you see vol reasonable, just from that perspective, you're thinking like vol is vulnerable to, if you think that in normalization process, gold is very vulnerable to downside, why not buy options, why hold gold, right? And yeah. chances are, basically what we're saying is like, either you get, when you get killed on options, whether you don't see a big move and you don't see a lot of volatility, right? When you see like slow grind to your strike. What I think is more likely in many cases, not just precious metals right now, is some kind of sharp original, either continued chaos and volatility or sharp normalization of various things. For example, if war gets somehow resolved and eventually war will die, but before it dies, it probably will work for you. Yeah, so straddles on 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 some assets where mar the market is not really pricing in um, vol the same way as it's pricing it in, in certain areas. Like it's tough to to buy a straddle on equities here, right? Or even on rates, given where implies are on rates. But I yeah, think rate vol has gotten very high, and this yeah. is what like, I mean. I talk a lot about this in my in my book because in two thousand eighteen. I start my book with discussions I had with John Burbank about buying calls on euro dollar futures. And those uh, calls were so much cheaper. We kind of revisited recently this conversation with him and the calls are so much more expensive. Mm -hmm. Almost so much more expensive now than it was in 2018. Yeah. Same day is just so much less lucrative. Sorry, I'm just interjecting. In the <laughs> no, no, that's great. I wanted to kind of get a sense when it comes to expressing these views, you're talking about options a little bit. Uh, you've talked a little bit about uh, cash positions. So if you wouldn't mind kind of walking us through when you're talking about options, are these over the counter, any of the exotics to use swaps and futures? Are they asset class dependent? How do you think about that? And what are some of the uh, instruments that you're using to express your views across asset classes? So my bias is towards manila instruments. Whenever I can, I use futures. Or if I use over-the-counter instruments, it's usually the most simplest ones I can find. 
I wrote about this a lot in my first book. I really want to avoid unnecessary complexity. I really hate any kind of like exotic knockout barrier options. I almost never do any of this stuff because it just adds many ways things can go wrong for you. Ideally, I want to just put a vanilla directional trade and hold it till it makes money. Because with options, there is a lot of ways to be wrong. You could buy an option and be right about direction, but either things might not go the right direction or they might not go fast enough or might not go far enough. So there's three ways to lose money except just one if you're holding the vanilla. Now, imagine that it's a, some kind of reverse knockout option. Now you added yet another way to lose money, that it went fast and far enough and in the right direction, but too far. So now you have four ways to lose money on the option. With every king, you jeopardizing your originally good trading idea with more and more layers. And of course, you pay a lot of bid offers. I think people really do not comprehend how much they pay to the street for doing exotic trades. I used to be an option trade. I used to be on the other side of that. And as many, and I think it is a strong pattern. People who came from sell side and they used to do option trades for clients, they don't want to use them as... <laughs> and it's not because banks pricing is bad it's just that you, you observe how clients do with those options and you see that they actually often don't do well on those options right it, it's not like banks are competitive they do what they can but they take money and like it just the more complex your structure every leg of the every this little kink of the structure makes more money you have to pay to do it and there's and a propensity of losing money. money. Now you're becoming a gambler instead of casino because you're paying away the rape. Yeah. On the theme of losing money um, or like having many ways to lose money on a trade, maybe let's let's wrap up because we're almost at 90 minutes and, and just valuing your time. Um, maybe wrap up with just a discussion about how you manage the risk of the trades that you put on and um, just risk management in general. Like, how do you acknowledge when you're when the trade is wrong or it's when it's moving against you or when the situation has changed? How do you exit? Maybe talk a little bit about that. Well, that's always like a paramount subject of, of investment strategies. And risk management is something that you always think you've figured out how to do it until you realize that you haven't. <laughs> that's like getting your risk management policy is like an ongoing struggle in life. And what I tend to do, I tend to differentiate between strategy for a trade and risk management for the portfolio. That is, if I evaluate the trade, my primary, I think, how am I going to trade this asset? Is it like a long-term trade? Is there a stop? Is there an exit? And I, depending upon what asset it is and what I'm thinking, it could have very different patterns of how I'm going to plan to trade it. My sizing will be such that usually I'm going to do some stress analysis, how big can the trade be depending on my conviction, and so it doesn't blow up my portfolio. Now, I do not have a principle that every trade should have a stop. The, risk, the paramount risk management comes at the portfolio level because if you're losing money, you typically have to reduce risk because you just have less capital to work with. And we have certain formulae for risk reduction right now in place, like in terms of how our risk limits change. There is some flex on that. Certain things which are flexible, certain things are less flexible, right? Certain like different parameters that we look at. Uh, certain ones we need to be followed very rigorously. Um, there is still, but for me, it's about the portfolio, not about the trade. Like if I have a portfolio of upsetting trades and some of them are up money, some of them down money, 
I don't want to be automatically stopping out of trades down money just because they happen to be down money. I've had a lot of trades that I just had to hold for a long time before they made money. And that was just as simple as that. However, so to me, it's all about not preserving portfolio. However, with trades, individual trades, I find it's very useful to stick to your original strategy and not overthink it. For example, if you tell yourself, this is my stop and this is my profit level, I'm a very big believer to observe those regardless of anything that happens and hold them till you reach those levels, regardless of anything happens, which is contrary to a lot of advice about being nimble. The common advice is be nimble, like take the new information. Now you can change your mind. This is whole thing about, uh, I brought it up in some other discussions, uh, strong opinions lightly held. And I was just like, I want to be the opposite. I actually want to have weak opinions, strongly held. I totally disagree with the thesis of strong opinions, lightly held. I think it should be weak opinions in a sense that you shouldn't be overly committed to any trades. But once you do them, for me, it works to just stick with them. Because when new information comes, the whole market adjusts and the price already adjusted. So the trade is as valuable before it was, um, it was than it was originally. The best work you're going to do is the research and thinking you're going to do before putting the trade on or as you develop the trade and build it up. And if you came up with certain levels to stop out of it, for example, that's probably for a good reason. So do not take new information and say, no, I'm not going to stop out of this trade because of new information. And conversely, don't say like, oh, I don't need to take profits here because now this company is doing really well. They have great earnings. I'm not going to take profit on it. But the whole reason why you bought this company is because you thought it was going to have great earnings. Now it has great earnings. So where is your edge? Right? So... Now, why are you in it, right? That's how I'm thinking about it. So stick with individual trades whenever possible. My recommendation, I'm not saying I'm always perfect about this. My recommendation, stick with strategy. And with portfolio, pick out how you're going to risk manage your portfolio, how much risk, depending on how big your portfolio is and what is the path of your portfolio, how much risk you can have in it. And that will basically answer all your questions. Beautiful. Well said. Yep. Well, I mean, we covered a huge amount of ground here. It's more than I feel equipped to summarize in 30 <laughs> seconds to end this off. But um, does anyone else have any other ground they want to cover? Or can we re release Alex with, with our sincere thanks here? We'll leave it for round two when we have Alex back on the show and we can talk about what's happening uh, in the world maybe later this year. Uh, we'll keep those questions for them. Alex, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. This was great. Let's make sure to um, remind everybody about Alex's two books, right? So the first one is The Next Perfect Trade and um, also The Trades of March 2020, uh, which we've reviewed uh, a little bit here today, especially in the current context, which was fantastic. Also, Alex, where can everybody find you? Uh, so I'm easy to find on Twitter. Uh, it's like my initial and last name, Igorevich23, at Igorevich23. Honestly, if you just Google Alex Gorevich, there are, it's a very common name, but I think I'm the first one that comes up, though it is extremely common name, so don't be confused by that. You could find, and also I have a corporate website, like the name of www.honteinv.com. So like content, be like content investments. You could also find it through Twitter or any other way, but that's a that's our corporate website. It's already it's for accredited investors. But there is some stuff that is more 
people can read kind of broadly and there is some people who actually interested in investing would have to be accredited in certain ways. What does Honte mean? Does it stand for anything? Uh, is it an acronym? It's a, it's a Japanese term for true move. Patient, patient strategic move coming from the game of Go. I like yeah. it. That's and we didn't we didn't even get to chat about Go and the, the fact it's been solved. <laughs> oh, that was a big event in my life, I can assure you. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. All right, boys. All right. Well, Alex, yeah. thank you thanks so all. much. And, and thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Make sure to tune in next week. I actually don't have the list of guests. Does anyone know who's up next week? Wow. That's a good answer. <laughs> I have to pull, I have to pull yeah. the agenda. Anyway, right Alex, it's, it's been right fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. All right. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Have a great have weekend. Have a great weekend. Bye, all. Okay. Thanks, Good Alex. Thanks, week. Alex. Thank you very much Bye. for having me on. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.